0: Our passage is Galatians 5, 1 through 6. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Well, that was definitely some heavy banter. I forgot about how I have to do that part. I can guarantee you, though, that I have prepared this sermon more than I prepared all of that, so we should be good there. Um, Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the word that you have given us. We thank you for this gospel, this gospel of grace that in your letter to the Galatians you have so brilliantly unpacked for us. This message that you have given us to give us real freedom, true freedom that meets us in the midst of all that would hold us bound. We ask, Lord, that your word would work powerfully in us by your Spirit, that you'd meet us in the preaching of the word, in the receiving of the sacraments, and we ask that you would give us hearts of love for you and each other. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. As you can see from our text, we will be discussing this matter of freedom. Now freedom is a difficult thing for us to speak about because the very word freedom elicits all kinds of notions about what real freedom actually is. Many, when they hear the term freedom, instantly think in terms of politics or their notion of what it means to be an American. Many think freedom means having no responsibilities or obligations. Uh, I'm not sure how many of you will get this reference, but in 1979, Janis Joplin even attempted to define it when she covered the song Me and Bobby McGee, and she sang freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. Nothing, it ain't nothing, honey, if it ain't free. Now, whatever we may think of freedom and how we would define it, we must understand that our notions of Christian freedom are not left open for debate. If we are going to understand what Christian freedom is, we must be prepared to find a freedom that transcends earthly conceptions of what freedom is. We must come to know a freedom that is better than how we typically speak about freedom. We must come to see a freedom that is more beautiful and more true than any of the ideas of freedom that fade with fads. You see, we must be grasped by a freedom that is not just an idea, but that reaches down into the muck, into the suffering, and into the sin and shame of our lives, because this is the main truth we see tonight, that there is a freedom that is free, and this is our only hope. Now, stating that you and I need freedom, that we are not by default free might come as a bit of a shock to you. We as Westerners and our Americans are taught from a very early age that we are born free. And that may be good and helpful as far as life in this world goes. We need to protect things for like basic human freedoms, human rights, uh, promote human flourishing, all of that. Yet we are mistaken when we believe that we have freedom by right in relationship to God, in relationship to sin, death, and even the law. But we need this first point to be true, that we must be set free for freedom's sake, because we're not by default free. In Galatians 5:1 through 6, we come to a passage that despite its bold proclamations about freedom, it has received surprisingly little attention and consideration in its importance with the rest of Galatians. Uh, and this is especially true in scholarly study of the book of Galatians. Now, part of the reason for this, if you've read Paul's epistles, is that we've gotten very much used to the structure of a lot of doctrine and theology up front, and a lot of exhortations in the back. You know, this happens in books such as First. Corinthians, where Paul opens with these powerful statements about the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of God and the folly of the cross. And then he finishes with uh, exhortations that we're not sure what they mean, like one of Andy's favorites when it says to greet one another with a holy kiss. Uh, We think, okay, Paul is getting ready to land the plane, so we can kind of check out of whatever he's saying. But the truth of the matter is, that what we have come to in our present passage demands the attention of our hearts, demands the attention of our minds, because what we have come to is some of Paul's strongest argumentation regarding faith in Christ and our relationship to the law. Furthermore, this is a very sobering passage, because as Paul appeals to the full weight of his apostolic authority, he exhorts the Galatians and us to hold fast through this freedom. So in verse 1, we jump right in. We see this powerful declaration and urging on to freedom when it says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This, of course, connects us to the previous passage in Galatians 4, 21 through 31. So much so that it is thought by many that verse 1 is actually part of that passage. But the best way, actually, to understand verse 1 is as kind of a bridge. See, it serves as the culmination of everything that was said before, but it is also the main point of what we see tonight. In fact, it really is kind of the only point of what we see tonight. Verses 2 through 6 are basically Paul's commentary on what he says in verse 1. So the question is, therefore, what is this freedom? Well, I think we should define it from two different angles. That is the negative and the positive. That is this distinction you may have heard before, I think Annie mentioned, it: of what are we free from and then what are we free for? Well, first of all, you and I are freed from the curse of the law. We've seen this various times in Galatians, particularly in Galatians 3, 10 through 12, when it says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written... Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. This curse is of the law it is the law's ability to condemn us because we are sinners It is the ability to declare us that we are not righteous. We are not as God created us. We are certainly not headed toward what God has created us for. The law tells us what the good life with God is. It tells us what the good life with each other is. It even tells us what true flourishing would look like in this world. And it even held out a way to reach the kingdom, a way to earn the kingdom to Adam and Eve in creation and therefore to us. But that is the problem with the law. That's the problem with how it is written on our hearts, that it not only tells us what is good, it not only gives us an ethical code, but it also tells us in our heart that we must obtain, that we must earn the truly good life. And each one of you and I in some way feels that. Each one of you deep down knows that feeling that tells you that being good equals pleasure from God or whatever it is that you're reaching for, even if it's not the God. And you see, this is the kicker because it is telling us how to obtain the truly good life, how to obtain the glorified life, how to experience creation fully glorified, everything it was meant to be. But because we fall short, it also tells us that we are sinful. It tells us we have not measured up. And therefore, it not only tells us what's wrong, it does much more than that. It imprisons us. You see, it not only gives us the guilty verdict, but it takes our hands behind our back, handcuffs them, and walks us out into judgment. That is why... Galatians 3.22 can say that the Scripture, that is the law, imprisons everything under sin. And 1 Corinthians 15.56 can say the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. You see, if you and I are going to be free, we must be free from the law and its power. And this does not happen by our sin-stained efforts, nor does this happen by pretending that the law Does not exist, but it only happens through a shift from being under the law and being alive to the law to being alive with Christ through faith, which is exactly what Galatians two nineteen told us when it said, "For through the law I died to the law, in order that I might live to God. For I have been crucified with Christ, so that is what we are freed from. We are free. We are free from that judgment." Free from the finger that points at us and says, you don't measure up. Free from that prison. But we are also freed for something. And we are freed for freedom's sake. You see, freedom is not a means to an end. It is not the missing ingredients that earning is now possible. It is not the gas in the tank for us getting better on our own. It is a decisive gift. It is the gift of being children of the promise, which is what we heard last week. Freedom for Paul means the movement from being a slave and being imprisoned under the demand to earn to being the firstborn son. The firstborn son who receives the inheritance as a gift through a word of grace, through a promise. This means that freedom is not just the avoidance of the curse, It is not not as if we are all uh, inmates, right? And we've served our time, and we are walked outside of the gate and said, you're free, here's $20, a bus ticket, good luck. Don't come back. No, freedom is much better than that. Freedom, as Paul laid out earlier in chapter four, four through seven, is an inheritance. This is what freedom is. It says this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, you are justified. And to be justified means this, that God sees you as he sees Jesus. And because God sees you as he sees Jesus, he sees you as the rightful heir of all things. Everything that Jesus has merited, everything that Jesus has won, including his kingdom of the new creation, God now has given and sees in you. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. In Colossians 3.3, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. See, it's as if God goes and looks for us, and he can't find us. He can only find his Son. But in finding his Son, he finds us. And in being in his son, we are truly found. So, therefore, the real you is the righteous you. It is the redeemed you. It is the adopted you. It is the beloved you. It's the shameless you. It's the guiltless you. And in all this, it is the free you. All of this is not through the law, but is through the gospel promise of forgiveness, the promise of righteousness, and the promise of life. We begin to see just how rich and how full this freedom is. And because it is so free, because it is so rich, it is so full, because we have everything in Jesus alone, it is therefore a matter of life and death. It is something that must be guarded at all costs for Paul. And this leads to our second point that freedom is all or nothing. You see, if all of these things are true, if we really have all of this in Jesus and not in ourselves, it should lead us to naturally ask, well, who would want to leave it? Who would want to just cast that away as something that's not necessary? The way you throw away coupons that you don't really need because they're for next month. But that is the deceptive nature of adding to the gospel. You see, our temptation is rarely to leave the gospel outright or to wholesale change the gospel. That would be too conspicuous. But the real temptation that we face on a daily basis in our hearts is to add something to it that we believe is helpful. Now, circumcision was just that. It's something that was very good. It's something that was commanded by God in the Old Testament It's something that set God's people apart, and it was even a seal to Abraham or a guarantee of the righteousness he had through faith. It sounds pretty good. But something happened to circumcision that made it deadly. First, it became something that you had to do, something you had to do to be righteous rather than a sign of your righteousness. And the second thing that happened is that circumcision had become to the early believers a signifier of having to keep the whole law to be saved, which we see occur in Acts 15. Now just a couple of verses from that to highlight it. Acts 15, 1 and 5 says this, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, saying, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, is it is it is necessary to circumcise them in order and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Paul's response to all of this leaves no doubt about how he feels. He says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. His language here is emphatic. It's the type of language you use when you're on a road trip and whoever's driving starts to fall asleep at the wheel and you have to wake them up. It is, has the whole weight of him being an apostle. And furthermore, I want you to note here that when it says keep the law, that word for keep is not just an idea of obeying most of the time. It's not just the idea of being a pretty good Christian, or being pretty good at keeping the law, as good as that is. It's not even the idea of keeping it 70% of the time, 80% of the time, or even 90% of the time. No, when it says keep there, it's a word for complete fulfillment. It is the idea of total and complete obedience. And what Paul is saying here is that if you want to go the way of the law, especially the moral law, it is all the way. Every jot, every tittle, you must render perfect, perpetual, and personal obedience. And while we can be well-meaning when we, attempt, when we are tempted to add to the gospel, what we see here is that to add to the gospel is to destroy it. And to destroy the gospel is to destroy freedom, because in that place it can only be said that one is severed from Christ, You who would be justified by the law and fallen from grace. You see, freedom really is an all or nothing game. Whatever you may think about Janice Joplin's diagnosis of freedom or definition, she was certainly right about this part. Freedom, it ain't nothing, honey, if it ain't free. But here is the good news. Jesus loves you. And he loves you too much for his church to leave you under the law. He loves you and he loves his church too much to just let you fall back into slavery. And so he sends his spirit. His spirit keeps us in the goodness of the gospel so that we cannot see this freedom snuffed out. And because that is true, it leads to our third point. That freedom lifts our hearts. And it directs our hands. You see, Paul gives this sober warning, not to undermine your confidence in Christ, but to make sure that you know that Christ is all you have. That confidence in Jesus is the only thing you have. And that confidence in Jesus is the only thing you need. You see, that's why he says in verse 5, that for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait the hope of righteousness. Because of your adoption as sons and daughters, uh, God, uh, your adoption of God, sorry, your adoption as sons and daughters by God, the culmination of that freedom is the hope of righteousness. That is your inheritance. And what that inheritance means is simply this that Jesus, by his perfect obedience, by his suffering death, merited for you a hope. That is eschatological, which simply means this. It's a hope that's coming. It's a hope that's coming down, a hope that is breaking into this world, into the sin and into the suffering of your life. There is a hope that is coming that will make all things new. That is what that means. And it will come when Jesus comes. And it has already begun in our salvation. This is one of the reasons why Jesus is declared to be the Son of God. You see, it's not only because Jesus was the eternal Son of God, though he was, but the phrase Son of God also carries more weight. The phrase Son of God also speaks to the fact that Jesus is victorious. It speaks to the fact that Jesus is king. It speaks to the fact that Jesus has overcome the curse of the law and has won something for you that you cannot win for yourself. And that is why it says in Romans 1.4 that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. You see, just as surely as Jesus has risen from the dead, you have your inheritance. That's how sure you can be. And because you have that inheritance, you are given the name Child of God. You are given the certainty of hope, the certainty of what is your inheritance. And all of this is, again, not through the law, but it is through the Spirit, by faith. This is your freedom. This is your inheritance as God's child in the new creation, by faith apart from the law. This is your hope in the redeemed, in the glorified newness of what God has for you when Christ returns. But in the meantime, as you well know, we live in this old world, this old creation, this creation that waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. We live in a world where people have needs. We live in an old world where people suffer, where people go through trauma, where people still sin and experience the results of that sin for themselves and with each other we still live in this old world. And so this talk of what's coming may sound like a little bit like, you know, by and by, pie in the sky, or whatever. And so how do we live in this present world, in this present age, knowing that there is that hope? How do we reconcile the fact that we are destined for such glory, and yet we live in such chaos now? Well, in addressing this reality that we are truly free in Christ's kingdom and still living in this old world, Martin Luther, in 1520, penned a simple work called On the Freedom of the Christian. And he starts that work by laying out what sounds like a seemingly contradictory thesis. He says this, "'A Christian is an utterly free man, Lord of all, subject to none.'" And a Christian is an utterly dutiful man, servant to all, subject to all. What does this mean? Sounds like something crazy Luther would say. But what he means is this, that in Christ's kingdom, Christ is indeed Lord of all. And because you are in him, you too are completely free, and you too will reign with him. But in this old world, Your neighbor still has needs. Your neighbor still needs you. Whether your neighbor is your actual neighbor, your children, your parents, your classmates, uh, the person you don't like that you work with, they all still need you. And so you are a dutiful servant to them. Luther, again, put it this way in another work. We conclude, therefore, that a Christian lives not in himself, but in Christ and in his neighbor. Otherwise, he is not a Christian. He lives in Christ through faith and in his neighbor through love. By faith, he is caught up beyond himself into God. By love, he descends beneath himself into his neighbor. Yet he always remains in God and in his love. What does this sound like in our passage but verse six when it says, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You see, you are completely free. And yet, because your neighbor still has needs, both your neighbor in this room and your neighbor out that door, you are called to serve them. And the radical yet beautiful thing about this is there are no exceptions. Your neighbor who doesn't look like you, You are called to serve. Your neighbor who doesn't worship like you. Your neighbor who doesn't live like you. Your neighbor who doesn't vote like you. Your neighbor who doesn't believe like you. All of those neighbors need you. They need the gospel that you have. They need the hope that you have. And that cannot be communicated to them in any other way but through love. And so what service you render to them is simply love, love that is unconditional, love that bears with them, love that bears their burdens, love that does not give up on them, love that sticks with them because that is the love that we have received, and that is the love that they need. Love is what we render, and we see in Paul's own life what the purpose of such love is when he says in 1 Corinthians 9, 19, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. You see, when we offer such loving service, not as if God needs it because he doesn't need anything, and not because we need it, as if we need to pad our own righteousness and secure our own inheritance, but we do so that we can see our neighbors set free by faith, that they too can share in this inheritance. So in conclusion, this is that inheritance, that you are free, free from the curse of the law, free from the need to prove or earn anything from God and free from your guilt, your shame and your sin. Free to be a child of God, which also means you're free to be Uh, not have to prove anything with each other. You see, this is the real root of Christian love. When we are set free by the gospel, when earning with God has ended, when the ax is laid to the root of all of our self-justifying efforts, then real love, real vulnerability with each other, real Christian fellowship can then begin. Because we no longer have anything to prove. We no longer have to keep our masks up with each other. And we can take that love into the world. And so you are free just as Christ is free. And your expectation of fully realizing that freedom when he returns is your unshakable hope. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, for your gospel. We thank you for the grace and the freedom you have given to us. We thank you that it is unshakable. And we thank you for our neighbor that you have given us to love. We thank you for all of the people you have put in our lives that we may love them, that we may serve them, that we may see your spirit at work in us to give us faith and in our neighbors to bring them to yourself. We ask now that you would cause us to live into our freedom all the more, to breathe easy knowing that Christ is Lord of all, and to love our neighbors knowing we have nothing to lose. Amen.